Lord, you are truly a holy God, um, and we are grateful that you have called us. Um, we cry out singing holy. Lord, that will be the refrain throughout eternity, is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And to spend eternity plumbing the depths of what it means that you are holy, holy, holy is a privilege. Thank you for offering that to us. Father, uh, we are grateful that you have not abandoned us in this world, that you haven't turned your back on us, but Lord, that you are still at work, still accomplishing your purposes, even in a world that's in, um, in turmoil. Wars and rumors of wars, uh, earthquakes, fires, hurricanes, all of those things, Lord, are exactly what you told us to expect during this time. And so, Lord, we want to continue to trust in you for those things. Father, we pray for the church in Egypt that was burned down um, and many people injured and, and killed. Lord, I pray that, um, that your purpose in allowing that fire would be accomplished, Lord, that um, many people would see a hope that's resolute, even in the face of such catastrophe and death, 30 people dead. Um, Lord, we pray that um, you would give your saints their strength to continue to trust in you, to continue to confess the name of Jesus Christ, and that that would be a, a strong witness in the, in the um, country of Egypt, in the neighborhood in which they're in, and within the families that they're with. And so, Lord, have mercy on them. Give them strength. Give them hope. Give them peace, we pray. And Lord, we ask now that you'd be with us as we turn to your word. Help us to see and to understand, to believe what you're telling us this morning is true. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So this building is uh, called the Capitol Gate. It's in Abu Dhabi. And uh, it opened for business in 2011, and it's about 35 stories tall. Not the tallest building in the world. They weren't aiming for that. Um, the top 18 floors are a five-star hotel. And when I mean five-star, I mean like royalty level, $10,000 a night, something along those lines. So it's really luxurious up there in the top floors. The bottom floors are all office space. And those office addresses are some of the most sought after, some of the most, um, what's the word I'm looking for now? Prestigious, I almost said prodigious, prestigious uh, addresses in all of Abu Dhabi. It's, it's that important. It's that, that incredible. Um, the building was built to look like two of Abu Dhabi's most famous natural uh, elements, which are the sand and the sea. So the way that it's built is supposed to be reminiscent of uh, a, a desert whirlwind, what we would call dust devils, those big swirling clouds of, of dirt that we get out here. Um, that's what it's supposed to be reminiscent of. And you can kind of see that there's a facade that comes down the front and then flattens out and, and lays as the roof of the buildings uh, off of it. Um, that's supposed to represent a wave from the ocean coming up and splashing into it. It's supposed to be these two natural elements that they have. But the most noteworthy thing about this building is that it is leaning at 18 degrees to the east. It holds the Guinness Book of World Records for the greatest incline of any man-made building. It's, it, it leans five times more than the Leaning Tower of Pisa does. But it just looks so effortless, doesn't it? It just is there. It just looks like it you know, kind of sprung up out of the desert. What you don't see is what makes it so super strong. This, this is an, actually an engineering feat unlike anything ever attempted before because the building leans so hard. It starts with the foundation, as any good building will. 
there's a very thick foundation that was poured and it sits on 430 piles. A pile is like a concrete pillar that goes down into the uh, earth. But the piles are very interesting because on the leaning side, the side where it's leaning to, they go about 100 feet down and they're there to keep the foundation up so it's not sinking into the sand. They're there to hold it up. But on the opposite side, the side that's not leaning, those piles go even deeper. They go all the way down and they meet the bedrock and they anchor into the bedrock. And their job is to keep that side from peeling up because this building, is tr gravity is trying to push that thing over. So that's the foundation that it's built on. The way that it stays upright is, is an engineering feat as well. In the center is this oval-shaped column that goes from the floor to the ceiling, from the bottom all the way up to the top. And that's what it's all built off of. So next slide real quick. That's that center portion that I circled in red. That's the, the center pillar. When they built that, they ha that had, of course had to go first. When they built it, they had to figure out how they can uh, have it be strong enough to support those floors that are hanging off to the side. So when they did it, they had the top of it actually bends away from where it's leaning. When they put the floors on, it began to bend it back to straight. It put the concrete under tension, which makes it actually stronger. And then the other thing they did was there are the same amount of material off to the left as there is to the right to keep it hopefully in balance. Now, go ahead and put the other picture back up. You can't see any of that. It just looks effort. It's like it just sprang out of the desert. It's just there. But there is a central pillar and a foundation in this thing that is rock solid, that is not going to move, and will keep that building up for quite a long time. It, it's just a marvelous thing. But it's the hidden engineering behind it, the hidden parts, that make it so strong, that make it possible to build a building like this. And so this morning when we, when we hear from uh, Peter, what he's going to show us is he's going to show us the hidden strength that we have so that we might grow in grace. Now, we're in this section, 3 through 11. We've read it three or four times now. And it is essentially a sermon. It's got three points. The first point is that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. He's given us everything so that we can escape the corruption that's in the world through evil desires. We can cling to his promises, which are precious and very great, that through the knowledge of him, we can participate in the divine nature, me meaning we benefit from all the truth of who God is. All his divine nature is a blessing to us through his great and precious promises. That's point one. Point two, which is what we looked at last week, is therefore make every effort. Work diligently to add to your faith virtue and virtue, steadfastness, and, and on and on. In other words, what Peter is saying is God's given you everything for a godly life. He's, he's given it to you. Now work really hard to do it. And, and that's where he left us last week is we have to apply that. And one of the struggles with this section is how is it grace if we've got to work really hard? And, and this week what he's going to do in his final section, he's going to bring those two other points together and he's going to show us how this is all of God's grace. Uh, that's where he's going to take us this morning. So this, the, uh, the last section begins, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. So he's, he's calling us brothers. He's reminding us that we're all in this together, including him. All of us are in this. Therefore, be all the more diligent. That's hearkening back to last week. Make every effort. Be more diligent. Work hard at this. 
This is a difficult thing. You're going to have to really apply yourself to it. Be all the more diligent to confirm. That word confirm has to do with making solid, making sure, making, making a foundation. It's the foundation of the capital gate, that, that really thick piece of concrete that's anchored to the bedrock. That's what he's saying is make sure, confirm your calling and your election. And it's the calling and the election that are the strength that we need in order to grow in grace. So calling, let's, let's start with that one. Um, well, first of all, calling and, and election, he says two different things. They're not two separate things. They're not two different things. He's probably using two terms to say your salvation. So that's the, the view in picture in mind here is, is your salvation. But he chooses to use two words to describe it, calling and election. And I think that's important that he does it because we need to understand them. So first of all, calling. When we use the word calling, we, we would like it to be one simple definition. It means the same thing everywhere we see it. I'm sorry you don't get that. It's a little more complicated than that. But it's still good news. So the calling. There is a call that goes out to the entire world. It's called a general call. The Great Commission is go and make disciples of all nations. Go everywhere. Luke's version of the Great Commission is, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other parts of the earth. So in this general call, we'll command it to go preach the gospel to everybody. There's not one class or category of people where we go, ah, well, you know, sorry, Jesus had nothing to do with you. We indiscriminately share the gospel with everyone. So think of the parable of the sower. Um, it, some folks from more agricultural backgrounds go, this is a terrible sower. He's, he's wasting seed. He's throwing it all over the place. It's hitting this path. It's hitting rocky soil. It's winding up in the weeds. You know, he should be much more careful with that. But that's Jesus' point, is that's how we are supposed to share the gospel, to spread the good news, is this general call. We go out to everyone and say, if you will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Everybody. That's, that's a general call to all people. That's not what Peter's referring to here because he says he wants us to make our calling and our election sure. So if it's somebody who doesn't trust the precious and very great promises that if you trust in the Lord Jesus, you'll be saved, their calling is not sure. They have abandoned it. They've turned their back on it. So there's a calling that is much more specific, a calling that God's people will answer. And that comes from the idea from uh, Matthew 22 when Jesus said, for many are called and few are chosen. And, and that's in the context of the parable of the wedding feast where he's inviting people in. He said, many are called, few are chosen. So the call goes out to all, but not all receive the benefit of the call. It also comes from John chapter 10 when Jesus is talking about sheep. He says, the sheep hear his voice and he calls to his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all... Uh, when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. The stranger they will not follow, for they, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of the stranger. The story there is Jesus is talking about this sheep pen where all the shepherds bring their sheep in. And so in this pen is this mixed flock of multiple flocks together, and the, the shepherds are all protecting him and watching out for him. But when it's time to move the flock, the shepherd walks out in front of the sheep gate and, and calls to his sheep. And these sheep have been so used to their shepherd, they hear that voice and they follow him. They didn't have tags sta stapled to their ear or RFID tags where they could scan them or brands or anything. They followed their shepherd because they knew that voice. 
So can you imagine this, this big flock, this huge intermingled flock, and Jesus stand out front and says, come, come on, my sheep, and this certain group follow him out. That's what the special call is. This is the calling which we are to confirm, is we have heard the gospel. We have heard the truth. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And at the right time and in the right way, we heard it as the master's voice, and we followed our shepherd out. So this is the calling that he's speaking of. It's a specific call to us. Paul talks about it in Acts. He says, and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed, uh, and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. In other words, Paul, you haven't called them all yet. I have many people who are in this city, and, and you need to call them too. So don't be afraid. You're going to be protected until you have called my sheep out of Corinth. So that's the calling that he's referring to. He says, make your calling sure. Make sure that it's true. Make it real. But the other part then answers the question, well, why is it that some sheep will hear his voice and follow him and some will not? Why is it that some will, will recognize that voice as good news and want it? And that's because he talks about election. Make your calling and your election sure. So the good news is that God has chosen us. This is from Ephesians chapter 1. He, God, chose us in him, chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. This is that central pillar of that building, the, the pillar of that strength that we can't see. God has chosen us before he created the world to be his people. He has elected some to be his people. But most of the time when people get in arguments about election, they argue about issues of sal salvation. When can somebody be saved? And, and how do you preach the gospel freely to the, somebody who's not elect? And, and all these nitnoid problems. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He says, you have been elected. He has chosen us from the foundation of the world to argue about theology over uh, the doctrine of election. No, to be holy and blameless. His election of us is to not just save us. That's part of the process. Ultimately, it is to do what Peter's been telling us to do, to grow in grace. So his election is something that we can't see, we can't identify. There's a, an apocryphal saying attributed to um, um, Charles Spurgeon, that I don't think is true. Uh, he said, if, if the elect had a yellow stripe up their back, I would run through London pulling up shirt tails. We don't know who the elect are. We don't have a physical mark that des designates us. You know how you know who the elect are? You go out and you tell them, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And they go, I believe that. That's how you know who the elect are. Because we are chosen, we are elect, we have been chosen in him from the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. And so that's the election. That's the calling and the election that we are called to make sure, to ensure that that's what's going on. Jesus says in John chapter 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear much fruit and that your fruit should abide so that you, whenever, whatever you ask in my, of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. You didn't choose me. I chose you so that you will bear fruit. So those, those qualities we heard about last week, that we're supposed to add this to this to this, that's the fruit that we're supposed to bear. That's why our election is, is so sure and so true. 
is because we have been called to be holy. Romans chapter 8, for those who foreknew, remember foreknowledge from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, we, we talked about the foreknown, the elect exiles who he foreknew. For those he foreknew, he pre also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Why were you predestined? Why were you elect? Why were you chosen? So that you would be conformed to the image of his son. To grow in grace is to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. To be more like our big brother. To grab onto and, and grow in those attributes. Those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. Make your calling the response that you had to the gospel and your election, the fact that God chose you from the foundation of the world, make those sure. That's what he's telling us to do, is to apply ourselves, to be diligent, to confirm those things. That's the hidden power that we need to grow in grace. So as we're struggling, as like the capital gate, as we're leaning and tipping in one direction and tilting in the other direction and and by all accounts, we should just fall right over. There's no reason that building should be standing. What we have is that central pillar where we're saying, my calling and my election are sure. They're not because of me. They're not because of my performance. They're not because of what I've done. God chose me to make me holy. So as the building tips and turns, as it weaves back and forth, we have a central pillar that we're holding onto and going, but I'm sure that Jesus is at work in me. And he says, you have to be diligent. You have to apply yourself to that very task. That's why we had last week, you need to pursue these, these godly attributes, these virtues that he lists. It's, it's not going to be easy because we're in a world filled with wicked desires that are dragging us away. That's why the building's tilted. That's why it's bent in a weird way. But we have to, what we have to remember is, as we're pursuing those attributes, what we're doing is not saying, Lord, I see, I'm good enough to be saved. I'm, I'm good enough. I did it. What we're doing is we're making our calling and election sure. We're saying, Lord, I agree with you. you. You chose me from the foundation of the world to be holy. You've called me into your glorious kingdom. Lord, I'm agreeing with that. That's all I'm doing. I'm not trying to w win my way into it. So that's the promise that he makes to us. He says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. That's actually good news. That's actually the power for sharing the gospel. As you say, if this person is one of his sheep, if this person is somebody who's predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, if this is someone who is predestined to be holy, then when I announce the gospel to them, they will hear and they will believe, even if I mumble it, even if I mess it up, within parameters, of course. You can't you know, like get it totally wrong. But so I, I heard on the radio one time a woman who called into a talk show, and she was just mortified that her neighbor had died and she had shared the gospel with him, but she didn't do a good job because he didn't believe, and it was just so terrible, and, and it's all my fault. And I remember listening to that and just my heart breaking, going, tell her the truth. Tell her. And the, the host tried to, to mumble his way through it. And I'm like, oh. The answer is, you shared the gospel with your neighbor. You did it. It's not dependent on you. It, it's not resting on your ability that central pillar is not you. The central pillar there is Jesus Christ. And if Jesus has chosen her, she will be saved. Don't, don't worry about it. It's okay. 
So that's the, the promise. That's the pillar that goes down the middle. This is how we can hope to grow in grace because God has given us all things we need for, God, for life and godliness. God has done that, right? He, he, we're making our calling and election sure. Can you make yourself called? Can you make yourself elect? No, that's all God's work. That's, that's what he's been doing. And so Peter goes on and he says, if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. That cannot mean if you perfectly execute virtue and self-control and steadfastness and godliness, then you will never sin. That's redundant. If you perfectly execute all of those things, of course you will never sin. You've got self-control. You've got virtue. That's not what he means by this. He says instead, if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. It means that like the capital gate, leaning off to one side horribly that should not be standing up, if you cling to that central pillar, then you're okay. If you practice these qualities imperfectly, slewing to the left and to the right, but hanging on to that central pillar, then you will never fall. You will never be lost. That's the rigid support that we need. That's the power, the strength that we need in order to grow in these things. Clinging to the support doesn't mean doing nothing, but diligently pursuing the support that pillar provides. That, that's the call that we have. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I would give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. That's tremendous news. That's making your call and election sure. That is pursuing those things. If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Jesus has promised you that you will remain secure. Now, we need to pay a little attention to how we term this because there's, there's some uh, phrases that we use within Christianity that, if we're not careful, can be a little misleading. Uh, one of the terms we use is eternal security. And eternal security is true. I think if you're saved because God has done these things, then you're saved. But when we say eternal security, it sounds like, uh, well, I said the prayer, and now I can check out and just coast the, way, the rest of the way home. And that's not exactly it. The other way, the more reformed way of talking about it is the perseverance of the saints. And the problem with that is we're using perseverance in a very old English kind of way, not a modern term. It sounds like the perseverance of the saints is, boy, if you just stick with it. In other words, it's all up to you. And I don't think that's an adequate description either. I think there's more going on here. So one of the better ways I heard is R.C. Sproul called it the, the preservation of the saints. And that includes you because you're you're being preserved but also it's god who's at work in you be diligent to uh, uh, grow in these qualities if you practice these qualities so the idea is that god is working in you he's that central pillar he's that rock solid foundation and if you cling to that you will never fail you will not be lost you can't be lost why because everything in this has been by him so where he goes next then in verse 11 he says for in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, it, it, Peter is telling us, you must practice these things. You must do these things. And then in verse 11, he says, in this way, there will be provided for you. What is your role in getting this? It has been provided. Again, this, this, even here, it's all of God's work. It's all what he's doing. There will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of God. 
What is he talking about with an entrance into the eternal kingdom of God? Um, just like calling, the term entrance in the New Testament is a little bit confusing. Um, George Eldon Ladd, in his book, The Gospel of the Kingdom, kind of sums up really briefly the complexity of the, the word. So let me run through this real quick with you. Ladd says, the kingdom is a present reality, referring to Matthew 12. The kingdom of God has come upon you, is what Jesus says there. And yet it's a future blessing, 1 Corinthians 15. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. You've got to wait till the resurrection. So it, the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's here now, but it's also something in the future. We'll, we'll receive it at the resurrection. It's an inner spiritual redemptive blessing, uh, Romans 14. It's not a matter of eating or drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's inward, which can be experienced only by the new birth, John 3, 3. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And yet, and yet it has to do with the governments of the world. Revelation eleven fifteen: the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. So it's personal, and yet it's global. And yet, it is a realm into which we can enter tomorrow, or we will enter tomorrow. Many will come from the east and west and reclined at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. It's still a future thing that we will enter into. At the same time, it's a gift of God that will be bestowed in the future. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And yet, we must receive it in the present. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. That's a mouthful going on there. But do you get the complexity of the image of the kingdom of God? What is it? Is it now? Is it future? Is it something we're waiting for? Is it something we received? Is it an external thing like, like a government? Or is it an internal state of being? And where Glad goes and where I think he, he's right is it's all of that. The kingdom of God is, is God's sovereign rule in the world, and it manifests itself in different ways. So when Peter says we will be provided an entrance into the eternal kingdom of God, you have to figure out which way is he talking about that. Since he's looking in the future, we will be provided an entrance into the kingdom. I think what he's looking at is he's looking at eschatological fulfillment of it. When Jesus comes in his glory, we will have a, a way provided for us to enter into that glorious kingdom, that kingdom that will never fall. It's the kingdom of our, save, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I, I think today eschatology is something that we probably need more of. <laughs> if you're older like me, you go, wait a minute. We had all the arguments and all the fights over eschatology in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. We don't need any more of that. But we do because I think what we lose if we're not focused on the end, on the kingdom that's coming, is we can be overwhelmed on the, the kingdoms of this world. Um, there is a lot of turmoil in the world right now today, politically, socially, culturally, personally. It's just, it's just a mess. And if we listen to only that, we can actually lose hope. We, we've got to have our eyes set on that coming kingdom. I think if we look at that kingdom, if we keep our eyes focused on that horizon, it will help us process through all of this stuff so that we continue to grow in those qualities in the light of all the opposition we're facing and will face. That's, that's why he mentions the kingdom. Our entrance into that kingdom is actually great news. So we need that eternal perspective, and I think Psalm 2 helps us the most with that. Listen to just this first part of Psalm 2 and, and apply this. Now, when you turn on network news, read Psalm 2 before you do it. Listen to this. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? 
The kings of this earth set themselves up, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Have that attitude, have that perspective, looking forward to entering into that kingdom, but don't forget how you get to enter into that kingdom, the kingdom which laughs at the kingdoms of this world. If you practice these qualities, if you practice these qualities, that entrance to that kingdom is yours. You'll be given everything you need for a life of godliness through the divine power of Jesus, through the knowledge of him. So that you can hang on to his precious and very great promises, including the very great promise that he is coming back. Paul calls it our blessed hope. He's going to return. It's that idea of that kingdom that gives us that power to remember that the way it is now is not the way it's always going to be. Somebody recently tweeted, I wish I'd have printed it out, said, this, this discontent, if you feel lost and, and kind of floating in the world like it's not quite lining up the way it should, that's a good thing because you're, you're a member of a kingdom that doesn't line up with this world. We should have that holy discontent. But Peter's application of that is the summation of 3 through 11. He has given us everything we need for a godly life. Therefore, we have to be more diligent to pursue that godly life, adding to our faith virtue, Adding to virtue, self-control, self-control, knowledge, knowledge, brotherly love, and cap it all off with just love. That's the promise. And how do we do that? How can I have a hope of doing that? I don't know about you, but I know me. I don't do that particularly well. (laughs) I have moments where I have great strides forward and then great tumbles back. How can I have assurance that I can enter that, that holy kingdom? making my calling and election sure, confirming, Lord, this is what you're doing in my life. This is the work that you're accomplishing in me. So though I lean at an 18-degree angle, I have a solid pillar holding me in place. I have a foundation that's rooted into the bedrock that won't move while I jiggle all over the place. That's what Peter's calling us to. He's calling us to that growth and grace, to becoming more like our big brother Jesus. And where he's going to go in chapter 2 is... There are serious opposition to that. But he roots us now in something that's solid, something that gives us hope, something to look forward in the future. The kingdom is coming. That's what we're told to to, uh, pay attention to. If you practice these qualities, then you have this entrance into the kingdom that is to be provided. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would uh, renew a sense of the eschatological in your church. Lord, that uh, as important as politics and culture and um, social media and all of these things are, as as important as all of the, the talking heads on television are, Lord, they are nothing when compared to what's coming. And so, Lord, I pray that we would all have that, that blessed view, that, that vision of the end, that vision of Jesus returning in the clouds of glory, with angels, with the trumpet, with the shout of the archangel. And all the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of our God. Lord, we need more of that eschatological view so that we can add to our faith virtue. 
so that we can add to our virtue, steadfastness, knowledge. Lord, so that we can lay hold of the promises that you have made that are precious and very great so that we might grow in grace. Lord, enable us, cause us to do that, we pray. Renew our hearts and minds to that end. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.